بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وأفضل الصلاة وأتم التسليم على سيدنا محمد الصادق الأمين وعلى آله وصحبه ومن استنى بسنته إلى يوم الدين اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير وبعد الحمد لله we've now reached lesson 60 in our study entitled The Radiant Light concerning the life of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and we've been, we've been speaking for the last three sessions about Badr and we haven't yet reached the, the battle lines when they're drawn and when the blows begin we haven't gotten to that stage of when the battle ensues but we're talking about all of the steps that led to Badr and all of the stages between both the Muslims moving towards Badr and the different moves made by Quraysh, both Quraysh in Mecca as well as Abu Sufyan. So, so far we've talked about what events led up to Badr and then we talked about the Prophet wasallam heading out and gathering 313 or 314 lightly armed troops among the Sahaba and we talked about those who stayed back with excuses and why they stayed back we talked about the inspection of the troops one mile outside of Medina and we talked a little bit about what Abu Sufyan was doing during all of this so telling this story of Badr really involves us telling the story of the Muslims making their way the story of Abu Sufyan trying to figure out a way to get back to Mecca safely without encountering the Muslims and the story of Quraysh who are marshaled and encouraged to get up and gather arms to go for what is going to be this confrontation on what Allah calls the day of Furqan the day where truth was made clear from falsehood so the Prophet ﷺ left Medina with 313, and some say 314, lightly armed troops. He did not even wait for the scouts to return to report the news of Abu Sufyan's caravan. And we sense urgency in the Prophet ﷺ going out. He's not waiting for the scouts. Not only that, his beloved daughter Ruqayya is gravely ill in Medina so we get the impression that he senses the urgency of going out and understands that if he waits any longer there's a strong chance they're going to miss that caravan they missed it before they did not want to miss it again so as we mentioned last week the Muslims are making their way with some haste to go to Badr meanwhile Abu Sufyan is still towards the north making his way to Badr. So we mentioned last week that he was getting near the Hijaz and he knew of the threats in general and he knew from the previous incident of the Ghazwat al-Ushayra that he was just one day away from his caravan getting raided. He narrowly escaped that. So what did he do as he's making his way to Mecca? We know that he sent out scouts to gather intel about any riders or anyone who's possibly tracking their movement. So we mentioned last week 
the narration from Ibn Ishaq in his seerah, which says that some Bedouins had encountered Abu Sufyan and they told him that they saw two men spying on Abu Sufyan's caravan. And these two men were obviously Talha and Sa'id, who were the two scouts sent by Rasulullah So they told him about these two scouts and they identified the area where they were looking, the vantage point they were using. Abu Sufyan makes his way to that point. He gets there to the campsite. He finds this abandoned campsite. He also sees camel dung. What does he do? We mentioned in that narration that he prods and pokes at the dung and sees that there are date stones. From that, judging from the size and the quality of the date stones and where he is, he says these are the date stones, the date pits of Yathrib, meaning these are the dates of Medina. Therefore, these two people here were from the Muslims and they are scouting out the caravan gathering intel. At this point, he knows that the chase is on. What is he going to do? So far, he's narrowly escaped those previous attempts. But now, Abu Sufyan is going to make two very fatal mistakes. Mistake number one is from this location, knowing that he's being tracked, he takes a local guide and has the local guide take him off the main road that he's on to side roads or side tracks that the Bedouins know about that others would not know about, who are not local to the area. This would guarantee that he can pass safely without being detected. So he finds these local guides and he hires them for this service. Mistake number two is that he hires another man named Dhamdham ibn Amr al-Ghifari. Now Dhamdham ibn Amr al-Ghifari was sent with one job only, to go all the way to Mecca as fast as he can to warn Quraysh to get ready for battle. That was his only job. So you see what's happening here. Abu Sufyan is a very intelligent man, and he was also a very honorable man for what it's worth. And he was, in his intelligence, seeking ways to avoid the caravan getting raided. So he sends, he sends Dum Dum there, to get that support so that if they have the force of arms from Quraysh, if you have a side route and you have a, another force coming north to protect you, then you're going to get back to Mecca safely. That's his estimation. He doesn't realize that these are two fatal mistakes and that those two decisions were going to lead to that day of confrontation that would lead to a much greater defeat than what it would have been if he had just kept on the route and got raided. He doesn't realize that yet, but that's what's happening. He has set into motion this great day of Furqan through these actions. So until now, the Muslims think they are 313 going out to face 40 people. Think about that. Imagine you're 314 deep and you're lightly armed and you have camels, and you have only two horses, but you're going to face 40 people. Chances are, it will not lead to any physical confrontation at all, because your force is so overwhelming to their 40, 
that it would be suicide for them to even try to fight you, 40 fighting against 313. There's no way. And they didn't come prepared for battle either. So the Muslims are going out confident that they're going to get this caravan, they'll outnumber them, outarm them, and it will be bloodless and, rel and, and relatively easy. That's the attitude going out. And this is why they weren't uh, all wearing heavy armor with different weapons, spears, bow and arrow, swords, and the like. They were lightly armed. So let's pick up from where we left off. Dhamdam -dham is sent by Abu Sufyan to go to Mecca. He's making his way to go rouse them to fight. But before he gets there, there are things happening in Mecca, mysterious things. We have the story of Atika bint Abdul Muttalib. Who is Atika? She is the sister of Abdullah. Who is Abdullah? He is the father of Rasulullah This may, means that Atika is the aunt of Rasulullah and the, the sister also of Abu Talib. So Atika in Mecca has a dream that left her completely frightened and completely certain that Quraysh is going to face impending doom. What is this dream? Well, she had the dream and she calls for her brother Abbas who is a Muslim at the time, but he's in Mecca. And we'll get to that story about why he was in Mecca, how he found himself at Badr and the different verses that were revealed about those Muslims who were still in Mecca who did not make hijrah. But she calls for her brother Abbas and she recounts this story. Now, she as far as we know, is not a Muslim. There are some narrations in the Sira works that say she became Muslim, but this is the only narration we have of her whatsoever in the Sira. Right? There's some narrations that say she became a Muslim. There are some narrations which say that she did not become a Muslim. Allahu A'lam, we don't know. But at this stage, she's not a Muslim. And she tells her brother Abbas this dream that she had. She says, I saw that in three days, someone will come into Mecca crying out loudly, uh, announcing pe to people while racing on his camel. At first, he's going to go to the Kaaba and will cry out, O traitorous people, you will meet your death three days from now. Three days from now. So she says then after this, she sees the same crier, the person making the announcement, on top of the Kaaba, announcing the same thing. Oh, you traitorous people, three days from now, you're going to find your destruction. And then she sees the same person on top of Abu Qubais. Now, Abu Qubais at that time, it is the highest point in Mecca, right? The highest point, the highest mountain. And people would go there to make these really large public announcements. So he's there, Abu Qubais, and he's saying the same thing. Oh, you traitorous people, you are going to be destroyed. You all be killed in three days' time. Now, the ulama of Sirah, they put this question out. Why would this person call to Quraysh and call them traitors? Why would they be called traitorous people? And they say that they were called traitorous people for one or two reasons. Either they were called traitors because... 
for the very first time in their history, they banished their fellow tribesmen, the Muslims, or their traders because they are betraying the Millah of Ibrahim, their ancestor. They're betraying the way of their ancestor, Prophet Ibrahim, alayhi salam, by worshipping idols and ascribing divinity to these idols and all of these things that they did that betrayed the original way of their ancestor. At any rate, she continues with the dream and says that as he was at Abu Qubais announcing, O traitorous people, your doom is coming in three days, he then picks up this large stone from one of the stones at Abu Qubais and then he tosses it down the mountain and it cracks at the base and begins to roll and roll and roll until it rolls through and pulverizes all of the houses in Mecca. It's a very vivid dream. So she's seeing the dream where he's coming to Mecca, he's coming, on, he's coming to the Kaaba, he's on top of the Kaaba, now on top of Abu Qubais, the stone is rolling, crushing all of the homes in Mecca. This kind of dream doesn't really require an outside interpretation because it's very obvious what it means. The person is announcing their doom, announcing that they're going to suffer defeat, and the rock rolling down the hill and the mountain and hitting all the homes is communicating that every single household is going to be affected by what's coming. Everyone's going to get a taste of this one way or the other. All of Quraysh are going to be affected by what's coming. So she goes to her brother Abbas and she tells him about this dream. Abbas gets very worried. And he says to his sister Atika, this dream is cause for great worry and I'm also afraid that if you go and tell this to people, it's going to cause problems. So you have to keep this dream to yourself and don't tell anyone. So he tells his sister to keep it under wraps but we see that the dream doesn't stay under wraps because Abbas tells her to keep the dream secret and not disclose it to anyone. But Abbas goes and tells one of his close friends. Abbas radiallahu anhu, he goes and tells his friend Al-Walid ibn Utbah about this dream. And he says to Walid, don't tell anyone else about this dream. And Walid promised that he's not gonna tell this dream to anybody and then Abbas told him the dream. But not long after that, Al-Wurid ibn Utbah goes to his father, Utbah, and he says, Abbas made me promise that I wouldn't tell anyone, so please don't tell anyone else. You know how that works, right? A person tells you a secret, and you think, okay, well, I can tell this secret to at least one person because I know they'll keep the secret, and they may start thinking the same thing, I can at least tell one person I know who won't tell the secret, and before you know it, it's all out, right? It's like a giant WhatsApp message that gets shared. So, Al-Walid ibn Utbah tells his father, Abbas made me promise that I wouldn't tell anyone, so please don't tell anybody. And then he tells the father his dream, and so on. And eventually, Utbah tells the dream, and others tell the dream, and before you know it, everyone in Mecca knew about this dream, but because it was done in a very uh, secretive, down, low-key manner, you know, during this time, Abbas still thinks that the secret is just with him and his friend Walid. Like, it's just between the two of them and the sister Atika. 
He doesn't realize that the news was spreading and eventually everyone in Mecca had found out about this dream of his sister. So it mentions here in one narration that when the dream finally reached Abu Jahl, Abu Jahl goes to Abbas. And this is when Abbas realizes that the news is out. He goes to Abbas and he says, are you not satisfied that your men play the role of a prophet such that you also have your women playing the role as well? Because dreams can be a part of nubuwa, right? And Rasulullah wasallam first received nubuwa in the form of true dreams, al-ru'ya saliha, right? So Abu Jahl is basically deriding Abbas and saying that, okay, your men claim prophethood, not, that's not enough. Even your women have to claim to be prophets as well by communicating these dreams that you say are prophesizing very disastrous events that are going to happen to us. So this is what Abu Jahl is saying to him. And he says, Atika, your sister, has predicted that there's going to be a war in three days. Abu Jahl tells Abbas, if the three days pass and nothing happens, we will write you down as the greatest liar in all of Arabia. This is a threat because he doesn't see it coming. Because think about it, Dumdum hasn't arrived. Obviously, that crier in the dream is Dumdum. He's making his way. He's almost there. But Quraysh don't see it coming. So the idea that there could be a war in just three days, is, it seems preposterous to him. So he says, if that doesn't happen, we'll write you as the greatest liar of all of Arabia. Three days pass, and Dumdum arrives. Now let's clarify something here. In the dream of Atika, the caller at the Kaaba, on top of the Kaaba, and on top of Abu Qubais is telling them in the dream that you will face destruction in three days. But three days later, he arrives. So the dream is, is six days, right? It's actually six days. But the dream is what the people are going to see when he arrives. So he's going to say the same thing, and then... Three days later, you're going to have the Battle of Badr. So this is where we are now. Dumdum arrives in the valley, and he stands up on the camel, and he's ripping his shirt, his garments, and he's shouting, Ya Quraysh, Ya Quraysh, the merchant camels, meaning the trade camels on the caravan. Muhammad and his companions are lying in wait for your property, which is with Abu Sufyan. The narration says that Abu Dhamdam had ripped his garments and that he even sliced the nose of his camel, causing it to gush blood everywhere. And he's looking disheveled. The camel is bleeding everywhere. And one says he's even riding on the camel backwards, facing the opposite direction. Why is he doing this? Well, you could say there's two reasons. He's, he wants to get people's attention, obviously. But it also gives people the impression that he himself has also been attacked. So here he is, he's all dirty, his garments are cut, there's blood everywhere. That looks like someone who just came back from a fight. And now, and look at how he's speaking. He is saying, O Quraysh, your caravan, 
your property and money with Abu Sufyan's being attacked by Muhammad and his companions Al-an, right now. Is that true? That's not true. They haven't had any encounter. But he is saying that. He's making that up to give people the sense of urgency that this is an immediate threat that you have to rise and confront. So he enters the city in this state, getting everyone's attention. And we'll see what happens. So, you know, in the scene, this is where the scene pauses and we go back to the Muslims. Where are they in this? They are making their way to Badr while this is happening in Mecca. And the Prophet ﷺ and the 313 or 14 companions are going southwest to Badr, hoping to waylay and raid the caravan of Abu Sufyan. On the way to Badr, the Prophet ﷺ sends ahead two scouts from the Muslim allies of Juhayna, who knew that area really well, to basically scout out for news of the caravan. So imagine the Muslims are making their way southwest. The Prophet ﷺ sends out two scouts from the allying tribe of Juhayna to go ahead of them, to go to the valley and the well of Badr to see what's going on, what's the intelligence. So these two scouts get to Badr before the Muslim forces do. The two scouts get to Badr, and the army is way back. These two men are here, and they go to the well of Badr to get water for themselves and their camels. So they make their way, they get the water. As they're getting the water, it's just two men, they see these two girls, young girls, and the two girls are talking among themselves. And they're just listening. What's the conversation? What's the talk of the town? And one of the girls is talking to the other girl about some money she owes her, a debt that she had. And one of the girls says, yeah, the caravan's coming tomorrow or it's coming the day after. And when they come, I'm going to work for them. I'm going to do some khidmah, some service. And I'll earn some money and I'll give, I'll give you that money. I'll pay you back when I get some money from them. So they have knowledge, the locals, that that caravan is coming very soon. It'll be there either tomorrow or the day after tomorrow. So these two scouts hear this and they know immediately that they have to get back and inform the Prophet ﷺ about the impending arrival of the caravan of Abu Sufyan so the Muslims can make their way there and prepare themselves to do this raid. Now, what's interesting is because they rushed back to the Prophet ﷺ, if only they had hung out a little longer, they would have seen something very amazing. They rushed back. But if they had only waited a little while longer, there by the well, they would have seen a rider coming from the west making his way to the well. A lone rider coming by himself. And they would have seen that that lone rider is none other than Abu Sufyan. Abu Sufyan gets to the well by himself. He went ahead of his own caravan to see if the route was safe for them to proceed to Mecca. So if those scouts saw them, they would have known it's even closer than they thought. But they didn't see him. Abu Sufyan gets there, he gets to the well, and he asks the locals, if they saw any riders come by 
And some of the locals said, yes, we saw two riders come by. They went and fetched some water for themselves and their camels. And they were at the top of that hill over yonder, over there. And he does exactly as he did when the Bedouins told him of the two scouts. He goes up there to inspect the area. And what does he see? Once again, he sees the camel droppings. He does exactly what he did the previous time. He pokes through them with whatever. He sees the date pits of Yathrib. So he knows, once again, it's even closer. So now Abu Sufyan realizes that the caravan is under very direct threat. So he rushes back to the caravan that was way back because he went alone. He rushes back and he turns away from the road, pressing ahead at full speed along the shoreline, leaving Badr on their left side. So imagine yourself going south, where the shoreline is to your right, and Badr is going to be to your left. So it's helpful to observe the maps. We don't have a map here, but we can probably share one next week, just to trace the routes of both Abu Sufyan and the Muslims and the Meccans, so that we get a sense of how they're all converging at different points and times to what is going to be the Battle of Badr. So, he presses along, leaving Badr to his left side with the shore to his right. And the two scouts that went to the well of Badr, they get back to the Prophet ﷺ and they tell him that the caravan is going to arrive any day now. And it will be there tomorrow or the day after. So they have enough time to prepare themselves, to put on whatever armor they may have brought with them, to prepare their swords, to get their things in order so they can set up position to receive that caravan and raid it, taking those items. So they're getting ready for what they think is going to be our caravan raid of 313 versus 40 with what they believe to be very strong intelligence that it will be there tomorrow or the day after. Meanwhile, back in Mecca, we know that Atika had this dream and people found out in Mecca and then eventually three days later, Lamdam ibn Amr al-Ghifari arrives, basically saying exactly what was said in the dream, that, but adding and embellishing details, saying that the caravan is under attack, under direct threat, and that you have to get yourselves together, get your weapons, get your gear, get ready. So people were roused and they were preparing themselves for battle. And people were saying among the mushrikun of, the, of Quraysh, do Muhammad and his followers think that it will be like the caravan of Ibn al-Hadrami? So that was, ghaz, that was the Sariyatul Nakhla, remember, when Abdullah bin Jahsh was sent on that mission and it turned to direct combat and Ibn al-Hadrami was killed. There's, they're recalling that incident that took place on the last day of Rajab and they're saying, do they think that it's going to be like that caravan? It will not. They said they're going to learn their lesson. So practically every single man of Quraysh went out to go to Badr. And if they didn't go out, they would send someone out uh, on their behalf. Not a single leader of Quraysh stayed behind except for one. And that was Abu Lahab. Abu Lahab did not go. Instead, he said, by Allat and Al-Uzza, I will not go. 
He was basically a coward and he was scared because he heard the dream of Atika and he didn't want to face that dream coming true for him. So instead of going himself, he sent another man. And that man is named Al-As ibn Hisham. Why did Al-As ibn Hisham go on the behalf of Abu Lahab? It is because Al-As ibn Hisham owed Abu Lahab a substantial amount of money and he couldn't afford the interest payments. So he was stuck in this debt with Abu Lahab. And in order to get out of the debt, Abu Lahab enticed him saying, go and face those people in battle on my behalf and I will release you from that debt. So for him, it was a rock and a hard place. So he chose to go instead of staying in debt with something he can't pay due to the interest. So he goes as a repayment for this debt. And everyone was basically pressured to go, right? They're, they're basically forced to go. Uh, there are people who didn't want to go, but they were pressured to go. Uh, you have, for example, uh, Umayyah ibn Khalaf. He is described in the Sirah works as an elderly man, also a person of great dignity. And he didn't want to go. He didn't want to confront the Muslims in battle. He didn't feel all of this was fair, what people had been doing to them, or that this was the right uh, course of action. However, Uqba ibn Abi Mu'ayyid, and you'll remember him as the one who once dumped the entrails on the back of Rasulullah as well as one who spat in his blessed face. Uqba ibn Abi Mu'ayyid, he was basically like the, the scumbag of Mecca. You know, if you, have a, if you have a town, a small town, and you have like the low-life riff-raff trash of the town, and that trash of the town has a leader, that's Uqba. He's the lowest of the low among the people of Quraysh. So Uqba ibn Abi Mu'ayyid, he goes to Umayy ibn Khalaf, and he's carrying this mabkhara. You know the mabkhara, the, the incense holder? They, they're made out of wood. I mean, they make them out of metal as well today. But it was probably made out of wood and has metal lining. He's carrying this mabkhara, and he puts it in his hands, in the hands of Umayyah, and he says to him, Perfume yourself because you're just a woman among women. So he's you know, pressuring him to go. So the Muslims, the, the mushrikun are being roused to gather their arms and march out to confront the Muslims. And virtually everyone goes or they send someone on their behalf. So how many of the mushrikun gathered their belongings, their weaponry and went out? The Muslims were, we know, 313 to 314. And for the Quraysh, the narrations put them at between 950 to 1,000. You know, so the estimates vary between 950 and 1,000. Ibn Ishaq, he actually gives a higher number. He says 1,300. But we know that some of them end up going back. right? Some of them go back. Banu Kinana, they go back. So they had... 100 to 200 horses. They had 600 coats of armor and 5 to 700 camels. And those 5 to 700 camels are camels for riding. They're also camels for slaughtering for food. So they're bringing a lot of resources on this trip. They're bringing their armor. They're bringing their weaponry. And they're marching out. So now they've gathered their material and they're heading out. 
In the Sira works, it mentions a very strange incident that took place as they were leaving. It mentions this incident called the incident of Kinana. And basically what happened is they prepared themselves and were getting ready to depart. And as they were about to leave Mecca, they remembered a very old conflict that had arose between Quraysh and Banu Bakr ibn Abdulmanat ibn Kinana. So Kinana. And this old conflict that was between them a long time ago. And they said, well, we're, we're worried, we're afraid that if we go north, maybe Banu Kinana, who has this old grudge with us, they might attack us from the rear. You know, think about old warfare, right? If you are marching in this direction, you have to have rear security. You have to have security on your right and your left. You have to watch your flank. And they're worried that if they go forth, that, Banu, that Kinana might uh, attack them from the back because of old grudges from old conflicts. It was a worry that some of them had. And this was actually about to deter them from going forth. It gave them pause. They're, they're really worried what's going to happen if they start marching and they get attacked from behind. And it was at that point, as they were really wavering about continuing, that Iblis himself, Shaytan himself, appeared in the form of Suraqa ibn Madik. Suraqa ibn Madik, we remember, is the scout who was tracking the Prophet when he and Abu Bakr were making the hijrah to Medina. Who is Suraqa ibn Madik? Well, what tribe does he belong to? He is one of the Ashraf of Kinana. He's one of the noblemen from Kinana. So Shaytan appears in the form of a nobleman of Kinana, about whom they were worried, and he says to them, I guarantee that Kinana will not come from behind you in any way. Instead, they are behind me, and they've come to support your victory, and they will not defeat you today. You are in my protection. I'm looking after you. Right, so this is actually mentioned in the Quran indirectly in Surah Al-Anfal. So as they're about to march out, they got worried. Shaytan appears in the form of Suraqa ibn Madik, uh, presenting himself as a representative of Kinana, saying that not only will we not attack you, we have your back, literally. So that pumps them up even more. Because think about it. They're no longer worried about what's behind them, and they know that what's behind them is actually a force that has guaranteed or promised they're going to have their back and help them out. So now they're pumped up even more, and they're puffed up with pride. They're now filled with this arrogance. Allah describes it as batar, this vainglorious pride. So in this feeling of ujub and batar and kibir, it's arrogance, pride, and conceit, they have the female singers that are accompanying them hit their duffs and tambourines and singing songs, insulting the Muslims. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals a verse in Surah Al-Anfal describing this incident right as they're beginning their march to go to Badr in that state. Allah says, وَلَا تَكُونُوا كَالَّذِينَ خَرَجُوا مِن دِيَارِهِمْ بَطَرًا وَرِيَاءَ النَّاسِ وَيَصُدُّونَ عَنْ سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ وَاللَّهُ بِمَا يَعْمَلُونَ مُحِيطٌ Do not be like those who left from their homes, بَطَرًا, 
in that state of great, exultant, vainglorious arrogance and pomp and pride and showing off and preventing people from the path of Allah, Allah is en- encompasses all that they do. He's all aware of what they're doing. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala also revealed concerning this. وَإِذْ زَيَّنَ لَهُمُ الشَّيْطَانُ أَعْمَالَهُمْ وَقَالَ لَا غَالِبَ لَكُمُ الْيَوْمَ مِنَ النَّاسِ وَإِنِّي جَارٌ لَكُمْ فَلَمَّا تَرَاءَتِ الْفِئَتَانِ نَكَصَ عَلَىٰ عَقِبَيْهِ وَقَالَ إِنِّي بَرِيءٌ مِنْكُمْ إِنِّي أَرَى مَا لَا تَرَوْنَ إِنِّي أَخَافُ اللَّهَ وَاللَّهُ شَدِيدُ الْعِقَابِ So this is recounting the story of shaytan appearing in the form of Suraq ibn Malik. Allah says, remember when shaytan beautified, adorned their actions and said to them, there is no one who will overcome you today from the people and I am a jar, I am accompanying you, I will look after you and I will protect you. But when the two forces met, he turned on his heels and he fled and he says, I am free from you, Uh, I'm afraid of Allah, I am fearful of Allah and Allah is severe in punishment. So shaitan puffed them up with pride, but in the moment when they realized that, the, you know, the gig is up, he, do you think Kinana came and did anything? Do you think that that support came? No. Basically, they were left to their own devices. So the ulama of Sirah mentioned that as they're leaving and making their way up, it's going to take them longer to get to Badr than it would for the Muslims. But on their journey, it is said that they would slaughter between nine to ten camels daily. So this is a lot of food. And the first slaughter a camel on this journey was Abu Jahl. Camels are expensive. We mentioned that before. They feed a lot of people. They're costly. So if you are slaughtering a camel that you own to feed people, you are spending a substantial amount of money. The first person to slaughter a camel to feed the people making their way to Badr was Abu Jahl. And Allah Ta'ala revealed a verse about Abu Jahl in this context. He says in Surah Al-Anfal, إِنَّ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا يُنْفِقُونَ أَمْوَالَهُمْ لِيَصُدُّوا عَنْ سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ فَسَيُنْفِقُونَهَا ثُمَّ تُكُونَ عَلَيْهِمْ حَصْرًا ثُمَّ يُغْلَبُونَ وَالَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا إِلَى جَهَنَّمَ يُحْشَرُونَ He says that those who disbelieved will spend their money to prevent or bar people from the path of Allah. And indeed, they will spend of their wealth. And then it will be for them a great, a source of great, immense regret. And then they will be overcome. Indeed, those who disbelieve will be gathered in the fires of hell. So this is revealed about uh, Abu Jahl slaughtering this camel, the first to do so. So now we have the Meccans making their way. We talked about the Muslims making their way, finding news of Abu Sufyan, uh, caravan arriving a day or two. Where is Abu Sufyan now? He goes, he finds out that the scouts were there before him. He inspects the dung. He realizes he has to rush back to the caravan. He goes back to the caravan and he gets there and he sees that the caravan is all safe. So we understand from this that while he's at the well and he realizes the scouts were there. He's worried that as he's away from his own caravan, that the Muslims may have reached it, raided it, and taken all the stuff. He rushes back. He sees that the caravan is all safe and sound. 
So he's feeling more safe and secure. And in that comfort, he sends a message to Quraysh. He gives that message to an individual named Qais, the son of Imrul Qais. Anyone, if you grow up in the Arab world, everyone knows who Imrul Qais is. It's like, do you know, do you know who Shakespeare is? If you grew up in English-speaking countries, of course you do. Imrul Qais was one of the champion poets of Jahiliya. Some of his poems were among the poems hung on the walls of the Kaaba, known as the Mu'allaqat. And the Prophet ﷺ says about Imrul Qais that he is Amir al-Shu'ara fi Jahannam. He is the leader of the poets in hell. And he, you know, his poetry is very eloquent. It is a standard of eloquence at that time. But his poetry is also very immoral and very raunchy. It's very pornographic, even though it's, it is a, it's a very high level of Arabic skill involved. So his son is on that caravan. And Abu Sufyan gives a message for Qais, the son of Imr al-Qais, to deliver to Quraysh. The message says, You departed Mecca with your men and money to save your caravan, and Allah has saved them, so return. So he's off the beaten track. He gets to the well of Badr. He realizes the scouts were there. He rushes back. He sees that the caravan is actually safe. There's no one to be seen anywhere. So we're all good. So he thinks. And he sends the message back. Everything's good. You can go back. You don't have to go all the way back here now. We'll make it safe. He thinks it's safe on this different route, bypassing the Muslims, and he thinks that he has escaped safely once again. So once Qais gets to Mecca, or he gets to the Meccans rather on their way, he delivers the message and Quraysh had to decide among themselves what they're going to do. Do they continue to Badr or do they go back to Mecca? Utbah, he says, the caravan is safe. So we should go back. But Abu Jahl had other plans. You always see Abu Jahl featuring in these events like this. He says, no, we're going to go to Badr and we'll just stay there for three days. And there at Badr, we're going to hang out. We're going to drink our wine. We're going to have our women sing and play music for us. We're going to eat food. And we're going to have a big, I'm paraphrasing here. We're going to have a big party. We'll make a big party of it so that news spreads throughout all the tribes and all the regions and eventually all of Arabia. So as news spreads, they will realize that we are a people to be feared and respected. So the idea is you hold a party to show that we're, not a, we're a force to be reckoned with. We're not scared of you. You didn't show up. We have, you have, you're, you're here and there. You're not going to come to us. And therefore, we should be feared and respected. So that was his idea. So despite the plan of Abu Jahl, they say about 300 to 500 people from Banu Zuhra, not Kinana, Banu Zuhra, and some other smaller tribes decided they're going to go back to Mecca. So that force of about, let's say 1,000, Ibn Wazhaq says 1,300, about a quarter of them decided to go back to Mecca. 
they didn't have any immediate interest in staying or going and participating in these revelries. So they decided to go back. This diminishes the force, but it's still a substantial force compared to the 40 that was this, this with the caravan. So a quarter of this army goes back. Meanwhile, as Quraysh reach the place called Juhfa, and this is most likely before Abu Sufyan reached them, there was a young man among Quraysh, among Banu Hashim. So he's a Hashimi among them. And he's a son of a cousin of the Prophet ﷺ. He has a dream, another dream. And in this dream, he sees a Munadi again. Dhamdam was one of these types of people. The Munadi, the crier, the announcer. This person from Banu Hisham has a dream when they're at Juhfa that a Nadi, a crier, comes and he has a camel with him and he's riding towards them and he's saying, Utbah ibn Rabi'ah has been killed. Shayba ibn Rabi'ah has been killed. Abu al-Hakam ibn Hisham, Abu Jahl, has been killed. Umayyah bin Khalaf has been killed. And he keeps mentioning name after name after name among the well-known uh, Sadat of Quraysh. He's naming one after the other. They've all been killed. And then the young man who saw the dream said that this Munadi, this crier and announcer, cuts the hump of the camel he was riding on and he sends that camel running forward. And as it's running forward into the, the encampment where all the tents are set up, the blood is spurting everywhere and getting on all of the tents. The, the interpretation of, is obvious. It's just as obvious as the, as the dream of Dhamdam that Atika had, where she sees Dhamdam coming and the blood is everywhere. And that's how he did it too, right? This announcement of impending doom. And it's not saying that, oh, a few people are going to be killed. It's saying that everyone's going to get affected by this. And he recounted this dream and they also ridiculed him. They didn't take it seriously. And that was that. Now, where are the Muslims in all of this? Soon enough, because here we are, the Meccans, they're making their way. They get the message from Abu Sufyan. Qais delivers it. Go back. They say, no, we'll go camp out at Badr. They decide to do that. This dream happens. Where are the Muslims? Well, reports come back to the Muslims that there's actually a sizable force of Quraysh making their way north to rescue the caravan. Now the Muslims finally learned that it's not just 40 people guarding that caravan, but there's also a large force of Quraysh making their way north. So you see that people are put into this position of deciding, should we deal with that larger force? Should we just go for the caravan? Like that's where it is right now. The Prophet ﷺ is shown a dream. And in this dream, he sees that there's going to be combat. But the Prophet ﷺ did not receive wahi about when exactly that combat was going to take place. And it is narrated that he hoped it would have been later 
But we see that that dream would manifest during the Battle of Badr. So the two scouts at Badr returned. They informed the Prophet ﷺ of the news. And news reaches them about the larger force of Quraysh making their way north. It's at this stage that Rasulullah convenes his companions for the shura, the consultation, washawirhum fil amr, to consult with them in the matter. And he tells them that Allah has promised you one of two, either the caravan or either the combatants. It's one of the two. Which one would be preferable? Think about it. You're out here traveling for days. The caravan has a lot of money. You're struggling. It's 313 of you to 40 of them. So there would likely not be any bloodshed. So do you choose that? Or do you choose to go into head-to-head confrontation with a force that is significantly larger than yours, better prepared, better fed, better equipped, and eager to fight you, thinking that they're going to crush you. A choice has to be made. Do you go for this one or do you go for that one? So the Prophet ﷺ says, Allah has promised you one of two, either the caravan or the combatants. The caravan was preferable for obvious reasons. It's easier and there's a prophet involved. Some of the Muslims were very loath to fight and they said, we're not able. We are incapable of facing this enemy. So let us go and take the caravan. How can we face that enemy? They're larger than us. They have more equipment. We don't have as much. How is, how is it not the obvious choice that we should go deal with the caravan? And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals in the Quran in Surah Al-Anfal about these individuals. He says in the beginning of Surah Al-Anfal, كَمَا أَخْرَجَكَ رَبُّكَ مِنْ بَيْتِكَ بِالْحَقِّ وَإِنَّ فَرِيقًا مِنَ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ لَكَارِهُونَ يُجَادِلُونَكَ فِي الْحَقِّ بَعْدَ مَا تَبَيَّنَ كَأَنَّمَا يُسَاقُونَ إِلَى الْمَوْتِ وَهُمْ يَنْظُرُونَ When your Lord caused you to go out of your houses, but the truth was with you, a group of the believers did not like it. And they began arguing with you about this truth even after it was made clear to them. It was as if you were dragging them to their deaths as they are looking at their deaths. This was revealed about those people. Further on, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals, وَإِذْ يَعِدُكُمُ اللَّهُ إِحْدَى الطَّائِفَتَيْنِ أَنَّهَا لَكُمْ وَتَوَدُّونَ أَنَّ غَيْرَ ذَاتِ الشَّوْكَةِ تَكُونُ لَكُمْ وَيُرِيرُ اللَّهُ أَنْ يُحِقَّ الْحَقَّ بِكَلِمَاتِهِ وَيَقْطَعَ دَابِرُ الْكَافِرِينَ Remember when Allah promised you one of two groups. What are these two groups? Quraysh or that caravan. Remember when Allah promised you one of those two groups. Because he says Allah promises you one of the two that it would be yours, and you wished that the unarmed one would be yours, the one that doesn't have any shauka, any force. But Allah willed to establish the truth 
by his words and to eliminate the disbelievers in the context of this battle of Badr. So others said, we can't do this, we can't face it. And the Prophet says, Allah has promised us victory either way, but you have to decide. Some said, we're not ready. We can't fight an army. We don't have armor. We don't have enough food. We don't have enough supplies. We're just not equipped to face that kind of force right now. So what you find, as we've said in the beginning of this whole series, one of the great sources of seerah is the Qur'an itself. And the story of Badr and the lead up to Badr is told in very vivid detail in the eighth chapter of the Qur'an, Surah Al-Anfal, which is named after the spoils of war. So in that story in the Qur'an, Allah is telling us these events. يُجَادِلُونَكَ فِي الْحَقِّ بَعْدَمَا تَبَيَّنَكَ أَنَّمَا يُسَاقُونَ إِلَى الْمَوْتِ وَهُمْ يَنْظُرُونَ So you have some Muslims who are weaker. And they're worried, they're scared. And for them the obvious choice is to deal with the caravan, not the force. But the Prophet ﷺ in this shura has not yet asked the muhajirun to speak. Those speaking so far are new Muslims from the Ansar. Now the Prophet ﷺ asked the muhajirun to speak to give their opinion about what should be done. Should we go for the caravan or should we go for the Quraysh who are assembling at Badr? It is at this point that Abu Bakr and Umar radiallahu anhuma rose and they said, Ya Rasulullah, the Quraysh in all of their grandeur and splendor, Wallahi, they have not been humiliated since they were dignified, nor have they believed since they have disbelieved. And by Allah, they will fight you, so prepare yourself for that. That was their state in that shura. There was no talk about, hmm, not sure, we don't really have enough equipment, let's take the easy way out of this. They said, no, it has to be done. That is to be expected from the muhajirun, because they have had skin in the game from day one because they struggled and sacrificed and suffered in Mecca. They migrated to Medina. They set themselves up in Medina, struggling to get a, get a foot and establish themselves there. Now they're near battle. This is to be expected from the Muhajirun. But now it is time for some of the senior of the Ansar to speak as well. So the Ansar spoke and different ones said different things. What we find interesting here is the ones who were trying to get out of it, these are new Muslims, their faith has, is still growing, you know. And when he turns to the Ansar, we have the narration of Miqdad ibn Amr. Now Miqdad ibn Amr, it's not like he was a senior Ansari at this time. He was actually a, a somewhat new Muslim at the time. And he was from Banu Zuhra. And Miqdad ibn Amr from the Ansar, he stood up and he says, Ya Rasulullah, go forth to what Allah has shown you, for we are with you. Wallahi, we will not say to you like Bani Israel said to Musa alayhi salam. What did Bani Israel say to Musa? 
Allah Ta'ala mentions this in the Quran. They said, فَذْهَبْ أَنْتَ وَرَبُّكَ فَقَاتِلَا إِنَّا هَاهُنَا قَاعِدُونَ Bani Israel said to Musa alayhi salam, Go, you and your Lord, and fight. The two of you, go fight while we sit here. We're not going to say to you what Bani Israel said to Musa alayhi salam. Rather, we say, go forth with your Lord's support, and we will fight on your right and your left and in front of you and behind you. The Prophet ﷺ was so overjoyed to hear this because it was a very sensitive moment. The Ansar had supported the Muhajirun. They received the Prophet ﷺ. But until this time, they had not gone out to face battle. So it was a very sensitive moment. So when Miqdad said this, the Prophet ﷺ was overjoyed. He praised Miqdad, he made dua for him, and he was beaming, literally beaming. Ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anhu, he says that he saw the Prophet's face brighten with pleasure from the words of Miqdad ibn Amr. And he knew that the Muslims are going to go forth for the battle of, of this battle that is going to be known as Ghazwatul Badr, the battle of Badr. And we see the unfolding of this battle the counsel of the Prophet ﷺ leading to the battle and making their way, the confrontation, the worries and anxieties leading up to the day of battle, and the actual combat details coming next week, bi'ithnillahi ta'ala. So we're now right at the precipice, right before the battle ensues, a day or two before it starts, as they face some challenges and some anxieties and have dreams. And then we get to the battle, insha'Allah ta'ala. Wallahu wa rasuluhu a'lam wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Any questions? Yeah. So I think this indicates that I think there, there could be darajat of the believers. They're not all believers on the same level. They yeah. still are Muslims. Hey, they're still Muslims, and you know, they're, they're, they're still new to Islam. And there's a whole process of purification going on. You see that definitely in the seerah, whether it is among the, the early Muslims of the Ansar and how they developed among themselves, uh, or the tribes that embraced Islam, who were received as envoys, uh, who received the envoys of the Muslims. Uh, you even have some cases, especially later on, of different tribes becoming Muslim, where the tribal leaders go and pledge loyalty to the Prophet And because they hadn't spent a lot of time, their ties to Islam were quite loose. And you see that happen during the reign of Abu Bakr as-Siddiq where faith wasn't so solid and it took time for it to solidify, right? And you'll find, for example, in the story of uh, uh, some of those of Nejd, you know, they, some of them will refuse to pay zakat and their fault and some of them return to Islam and it'll say about them, right, وَحَسُنَ إِسْلَامُهُ You know, his Islam became good and they became a pious person, but it took time. 
Uh, and in this early period, you're right, Allah didn't describe them as munafiqun. And we wouldn't say that this mujadala, this yujadilunaka fil haqqi ba'dama tabayyana, we wouldn't say that it is uh, uh, an aggressive argumentation where there's hostility and raised voice and a loss of adab. They're being taught adab, but it was presenting their worries and objections, their fears, and Allah Ta'ala describes that as mujadala, as argumentation, because the matter was clear, you know. And this is why that day became known as the day of Furqan. Not just Furqan where the Quraysh were put on notice, but the Muslims realized through all of the miraculous occurrences that took place at Badr that this is the way forward and that strengthened their own Iman. And Allah Ta'ala reveals in that same chapter that this, their Iman was strengthened by these experiences and these miracles and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent the angels to also increase them in firmness, right? So it's a, it's a whole process, you know. The Sahaba were obviously not ma'asum, and this was a development for them. This is the second year after the Hijrah. So these Ansaris who were speaking, these are literally brand new Muslims, a year in, a year and a half in, and they have those anxieties and worries you just contrast their attitude with the muhajirun, right? For them, it's, it's like, no. But also, like, how did the senior Sahaba treated those younger Muslims? Did this ridicule them because of their attitude or just like take, take them, took them in and came in their way, sort of, and then tried to realize basically that they are yeah. When we read the accounts of the shura, we don't get the sense that it was any kind of mutiny where people are putting their foots down and saying, no. But they're just expressing their anxieties and they're saying, no, if it's two options, let's consider this one. But then once the muhajirun speak and then once miqdad speaks, that seals the deal. And that, if anything, is positive pressure. These are seniors to them in Islam. So they, they play a mentorship role, and in that positive pressure, they are encouraged to be more brave by their example. But as we'll see next week, there's still anxieties, there's still worries going into this because, and we see Allah Ta'ala eases those anxieties through certain miracles, certain things that lift their spirits, uh, the sleep, the sakina, the rain, all of these things that smooth the way for a difficult battle that becomes itself a fath mubin, a clear opening, a clear opening in terms of physical victory, but also a fath mubin for their own selves, right? The fath, that opening where they come to have a higher degree of yaqeen and, and solidifying of their own iman through the experience.